Hi, everyone. I'm Josh. I'm Joe. And this is Video Dropbox, a movie chat podcast where your hosts take turns challenging each other to browse a unique section of the video store and select a film in under one minute. If a title is not selected in time, we'll have to hit the Video Dropbox and defer to What's in the Basket. We're doing things a little different this episode, so instead of our usual movie challenge, we'll be chatting with a lucky video store customer about what they've put in the basket. Oh, look, it's video store regular Jason Mitchell. Hey, guys. Welcome to Video Dropbox. Welcome, Jason. Thanks. I was just returning the video. Oh, boy. Uh, well, first off, I'm looking at your account, and I see that you still have some late fees for anything else and Dance Party USA. We'd appreciate it if you return them at your earliest convenience, but that is not what we want to talk about today. No, we'd like to find out what movie you've just put in the basket. Sure. I have put in the basket The NeverEnding Story 2. Oh, oh no. Oh, yes. <laughs> I am so glad. This is definitely going to evolve into a Jonathan Brandis conversation. I think what we have to do is shut the store down briefly and pop this movie in and watch it on the TVs at this video store that we are very obviously in at this moment. That's a fantastic idea. And then, and then let's talk about it. Let's have a chat with our special guest, Jason Mitchell. Sure, I'll watch it again. Now is the time to revisit the land of the never-ending story for an all-new adventure. All right. Uh, before we begin, Jason, do you want to just share a little bit about yourself and whether or not you remember how, like, how the three of us met? Uh, I do. Uh, we all met at um, Minneapolis Community and Technical College. Um, I started going there in 2003 because I wanted to learn how to record music. So I was in the sound arts program. And at the time, I thought that it was a good idea to try and build a recording studio and people would come to me to record music. And that is not what happened because now everybody can record audio in their own home on their own computer as we are doing. But I met both of you in the video program, weirdly, the sound arts program, like one of the electives in the first year was to take video one, which is from the video digital arts program. Um, and I had always made little skits with my home video camera with my friends in high school and stuff. So I did that. And then I ended up taking that whole degree also. So I got two degrees, video digital arts and sound arts. And um, I don't think video digital arts is a degree that exists anymore at that school. I don't remember, like, Joe, I think, was in my Video 2 class, and I don't remember where I met Josh. Yeah, I was going to ask if you met Josh through me, because Josh and I had Video 1 together, and then, yeah, I knew you through Video 2, but I don't know, Josh, where you got roped up into that. I want to say you're absolutely right. I think we had gotten to know each other through Joe, but also, Jason, you worked in the equipment room, Yeah, too, so I feel like... That was probably our earliest introduction to each other, even though we maybe didn't interact other than like the superficial, like, please help me with this. I have <laughs> sure, no idea yeah. what I'm doing. I mean, Joe and I have established in a previous episode that I absolutely had no clue what I was doing and didn't want to learn how to do it. I just wanted to get in and get out so I could start writing again. Well, and that was most people there because it was like an introductory level program. So like I helped a lot of people. I feel like you and Joe had more time together. And I think eventually, because Joe and I had become roommates, that's probably how we all hung out more often. I mean, we'd see each other. And then yeah. I was working with your now wife, 
at the Mall of America. And so then again, it was just kind of like everyone kind of coming together. Like you guys had met. I don't want to take credit for that, but I do think that's probably how you guys met, right? Is we all no, hung out. I, I, I feel like I told this story recently and you didn't remember this, Josh, but probably I remember <laughs> going out with you to like get drinks. And I specifically was like, do you know any girls that I could go out with? Oh no. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was a mess back then. So I've since apologized many, many times, but, but yeah, I did. I did introduce you to, or I did yep, not. You did introduce me to my now wife. Okay. See, I wish yeah, I had it worked out. Yeah. Yes. It's a good story. It's a, it's yeah. a ending, a good ending to possibly train wreck story of me just being a mess in my twenties. But yeah. one of my other questions was, so Joe and I in the past have shared our, some of our favorite films. Now, I hate saying what are your favorite films because it's so hard to sort of summarize or condense a list. But are there like a top, is there a top 10 list of films that you maybe have in your brain that you could say like are pretty influential or that you absolutely love? Our listeners need ample ammunition to judge you on. So sure, that's fine. Um, I do have a top 10 list since you asked me to put one together. I would not have otherwise. So, okay, at number 10, I have Clerks. Oh. I don't feel like it's a very good movie necessarily. I think it's still maybe my favorite Kevin Smith movie, which I don't generally like his movies. But this is sort of holding the spot of like movies that actually made me feel like I could make movies. Like, Mm. I feel like when I watch Clerks, it's like, oh, I totally understand how to make this. Like, this is something that anybody could do. And so, like, I was also, like, contemplating in this slot, putting in, like, Before Sunrise was another one that, like, I saw that and was like, oh, this is, like, a really easy thing to do. Or also, I went to the U of M for um, a semester right after high school, and I took a film history class there, and I saw Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless, which was another one that I was like, that made me want to make movies. Not that it seemed like it was a movie that I could do, but it sort of broke rules and, and felt like it was like interesting and cool. Sort of like reminded me of like what Tarantino was doing as far as like, you don't have to, it's like a punk rock kind of approach to filmmaking, I guess. Sure. Number nine, a goofy movie. Oh, oh, nice. I haven't seen that in a long time. Yeah. I feel like I rewatched that one in my twenties and like, I recognize that like, it still like really like hit a sentimentals thing for me. I think a lot of these movies too, we're going to probably hit again and again, like the theme of like Jason wanting to go out with somebody and feeling bad about it. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that character shows up a lot in these movies. So, so that's probably like when I was younger, like I related to those kind of stories. Um, like can't hardly wait, almost made this list, mm. but I feel like oh, that movie's. I'm surprised it has. It didn't. It didn't, and I feel like it's just kind of cringy now. Like Ethan Embry is real, like um, the bad guy, nice guy character, where, where it's like creepy. But anyway, I have to ask too. So, spoiler alert: you have a son. His name is Max. Is that inspiration from a Goofy movie? There definitely were multiple characters. That, like I think we liked the name, but then there were a lot of characters named Max that we liked and I related to. And there might be another one on this list too. Okay, uh, number eight, A Woman Under the Influence. This is not one that I would have had on my list before. Like I've definitely had like number one favorite movies before that I would argue about with people. 
I wanted a John Cassavetes movie on here. And I feel like this one has become more my favorite, mostly because it's not just like guys getting drunk and being mean, but it also like feels a lot more interesting to me as a performance of like a character who's got some sort of undefined mental illness going on and like how people around her have to deal with that. Anyway, number seven, The Science of Sleep. Oh, I was wondering if this was going to show up on your list because we saw this together, a midnight show of it. And I was curious if your opinions of this film still held up after all these years, because this film, I feel, is mostly forgotten by people. Yes, I I agree with that. I, I think it has held up. I haven't watched it a ton because it kind of wrecked me when I first saw it. Um, mm-hmm. It like really helped me recognize like, oh, sometimes you're a creep. Because I feel like that's sort of what the main character is sort of like coming to terms with, that he's not just like this um, romantic hero, that he's just kind of a creep. Okay, uh, number six, who framed Roger Rabbit? Ooh, that's on my honorable mentions list. I don't know if that made it on the podcast, but I, of course, had more than 10 films and that was (laughs) definitely top 20 for sure. Well, I wouldn't have narrowed it down so far if I would have known I could do honorable mentions. (laughs) I I couldn't help it. 19 on my first draft. Um, yeah, I mean, I've loved this since I was a kid. I have always really liked animation as sort of like a format and like the history of animation. And it just seems like such a like lightning in a bottle kind of movie, like they could never do it again. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and it's just like, it's, it would be one thing if it was like, oh, like it's this huge team up of Looney Tunes and Disney characters and they just make Space Jam or something, you know? It's actually like a, a good movie. So I think that that's kind of great. Um, yeah, I I like how they got away with not only having that dream team of all these characters, but then basically did a Chinatown for its yes. story. Yeah, like how did how did anyone okay this? Right, <laughs> it's such a weird idea too. To like, uh, I don't know, and like I know it's based on a book, and so that's probably where it came from. But mm. like, yeah, like to actually be the thing that all the intellectual property comes together being like such a weird noir. Yeah, it's great. Anyway, number five, Mulholland Drive. Good one. Yeah, big David Lynch fan. I feel like if I was going to rank David Lynch movies, maybe that wouldn't be at the top of my David Lynch list. But I feel like as far as my favorite movies, that's probably the one I've watched the most. Mm. And it was definitely like my gateway in. Because I remember seeing Lost Highway when it came out and not really getting it at all and not really liking it. I I watched it because I, I like the Smashing Pumpkins song that was on the soundtrack. <laughs> it's a great soundtrack. But Mulholland Drive was the first time I was like, oh, like I liked it. And it felt like sort of like around the same time Memento came out where it's like this movie you kind of have to like unlock. And it felt like I feel like as far as lunch movies go that you can try and pick out some sort of mystery story to them that Mulholland Drive is like you can get into it like you can almost figure it out pretty easily. It's not one of those ones that like there's a bunch of stuff that just doesn't make any sense at all. Mm-hmm. Um, number four, I have Ingmar Bergman's Fanny and Alexander. I'm a big fan of Bergman. And this one, I feel like it's a culmination of all the different kinds of stuff he did. And I like that one a lot. If I was younger and more depressed, I might have said Winter Light, which is a super bleak one. But um, <laughs> I like the Fanny Alexander is like, it sort of represents a lot of what he did through his whole career, but it also like has a lot of heart. Um, and it's not just like this existentialist dread kind of thing. Number three is Rushmore. Another Max. Another Max. That's another character that I definitely related to. And um, yeah, I feel like there's better Wes Anderson movies, but that's the one that like just really hits the spot for me um, personally. And I think it also just sort of came out around 
for the the right time when I was like really starting to get into like more like indie level film and and thinking about doing that myself. Mm. Um, number two is Boogie Nights. Mm. Ooh, that's good. I remember in uh, when we were going to community college together, uh, I made my first uh, independent feature as a final project. And um, our instructors told us not to do that, but I was like, I can do whatever I want. Um, <laughs> and I think I watched Boogie Nights maybe like four or five times, like getting ready to start production on that movie. It felt like a good like filmmaking textbook to me. Uh, number one is Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Ooh, good. That one, I feel like I've always like tended to throw in some like real pretentious filmmakery kind of stuff on my favorite lists. But if I'm honest with myself, that is my favorite movie. It is just tons of fun, and I've probably watched it a hundred times. I still feel like it like relates to me personally. Like it's about a weirdo that doesn't fit in and just sort of does his own thing. But that's the one. That's a great list. Thank you. Well, so I noticed though that Never Ending Story Two was not on this list. So uh, yeah, it might have come in at number eleven. <laughs> so why did you choose this film to talk about today? So I was given some topics that I could have picked from, and there were two that sort of I felt like this could have fell into. Uh, I think one of them was movies you liked as a child that you have not gone back to, which mm-hmm. I had not, and another one was something along the lines of like something that scared you as a kid. And I sort of remembered being scared by this. But spoiler, before we really get into talking about it, I think I might have picked the wrong movie because I think most of my memory was from the first movie. (laughs) I was going to ask that if you'd seen two before one or one and then two. I I probably saw them in order as a kid and they totally blended together in my memory. And like when I went to watch this again, I was like, oh, everything I remember is from the first one. And so I actually watched (laughs) the first one after I watched the second one. And then I felt like I had to watch the second one again because they do just blend (laughs) together to me. And there's a lot that I know we're supposed to just talk about two, but I feel like there's a lot from one that is almost exactly the same in this movie. Don't feel bad because I did that same thing on our last episode, which was Nightmare 5. I was thinking of everything that happened in Nightmare on Elm Street 4, but I picked 5 and then I was like, oh no, these are totally two different films. Right. The upside of you picking this, regardless if you intended to or not, is that it has Jonathan Brandis. It does. And that was part of the the factor in, in picking it. Yeah, and Joe and I have gone on record already, uh, probably almost every episode, at least having one Jonathan Brandis reference, because we do have a very huge hole in our hearts for Jonathan Brandis. And in fact, I grew up with him seeing this film, Never Ending Story 2, first, obviously, because I think it's his first film, which maybe yep. Joe will get into. Yeah. But I just fell in love with him right off the bat. And again, struggling with my sexuality and not understanding things, I had no clue what that feeling was, but this is how deep it went. In my hand right now, I have a January 1995 issue of Teen Beat magazine. Oh, wow. my God. That's He's great. right there in the middle. It's a sneak peek. Jonathan rules in The Good King. And so... Oh, The Good the, King Wenceslas? <laughs> yep. And I never, I've never seen it, but here are like these great stills in color of him. Was that a um, TV movie? Yeah. I think it's, so, yeah. It's, it's on YouTube in its entirety, if you're curious. Well, Jason, just so you know, for this little article, it says, when's it on? We know you're anxious to see Jonathan, but you're going to have to be patient until November 26th at 8 p.m. That's the date and time the Good King premieres on the Family Channel. So till then, keep tuning in to Sequest DSV for your dose of JB. 
Oh boy. <laughs> so I just had to throw that out because it also came with, which I couldn't find, but I do still own it somewhere. A full out nine by eleven color copy of Jonathan Brandis, like a fold out that I legitimately had up on my wall. And why a heterosexual young boy would have this picture of Jonathan Brandis, we all know why. I had it. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned that because I too had big posters of Jonathan Brandis from like Bop Magazine up on my wall. I wanted him to be my best friend. <laughs> That's the thing is like, I was never attracted to him sexually, but I feel like I just thought he was so cool. Like yeah. he seemed like somebody that you would like want to hang out with or want to be like. Yes. Two very different narratives for you guys and me. He's not like a, I don't know. Like, I feel like some of the other like heartthrobs are more like they were like trying to be cool or like trying to be an idol or whatever, but he seemed like he could be your friend or whatever. Like mm. he was like, he came off as like sensitive, I guess. It was a different kind of thing than like the new kids on the block or something. He never came across to me as an actor who wanted to be a celebrity. Right. Mm. And I think that's why I really appreciate him. Something I think that gets lost by fans, I guess, coming to him later that only mostly know him through his movies is how prevalent he was on TV before, even before Sequest at the time. Because I was looking, he joined Sequest in 1993, but he had a crazy five years of that, like 1990 had It and Never Ending Story to, and 92 had Ladybugs and Sidekicks. But he was also making appearances. He was in the pilot episode of Good Morning, Miss Bliss, which became Saved by the Bell. He did an episode of Full House, Webster, Blossom, Who's the Boss, Wonder Years, The Flash, which the Flash in that show is the dad from Never Ending Story 2. And I guess after Sequest, he was did a voice of a villain in the Aladdin cartoon, Oh. My personal favorite, you can find it on YouTube. It's the Earth Day special from 1991, which TV doesn't really do this anymore. But back then, I feel they would come together for these specials. This was all about saving the planet and Bette Midler plays the dying Earth and she's oh. in a hospital bed. And they <laughs> bring in all of these sitcoms, not just from, I think it was on ABC, but not just from that channel. Like You have the cast of Cheers and... Uh, I think the Muppets and all of these different shows doing little skits talking about how to recycle or things like that. But Jonathan Brandis is one of the three main kids who's kind of going around and being the observer of the hmm. uh, shenanigans. But hmm. he was all over the place. Yeah. I really liked Sequest when it was on. That was one of my favorite shows when I was a kid. Mm. Um, but yeah. I that, I remember it the same way. He was just like, I feel like even more than like Jonathan Taylor Thomas or some of those ones that like are sort of the stereotypical 90s heartthrobs or whatever. Because mm. I feel like those were like, they were around, but I don't remember as many screen credits, you know? Yeah. yeah. Another one to put on our list, Joe, that I've never seen that I was looking at his IMDb and I it sounds right up our alley is Stepfather 2. Oh, yeah, I've seen Make that. Make room yeah. for daddy, it says. So <laughs> I just, that alone, the title alone, I'm like, that sounds like a movie for me. The trivia that I discovered that broke my heart the most is that he auditioned for the role of Anakin Skywalker in Star Wars Episode Two, And just the idea that we could have had a Star Wars movie with Jonathan Brandis. Mm. I was, oh, gosh. This whole idea of that, you know, he was down about where his career had gone with his scenes getting cut from Heart's War, that this would have been something, but I don't know. Yeah, and maybe possible resurgence, unlike, unfortunately, right now, which uh, when I was doing my research, too, I did see there's actually a quite a lot of 
fan pages now through social media that are dedicated to him because people are slowly kind of realizing like who this is and you know his body of work so not that being in that movie would have like then he wouldn't have killed no, himself no. but it's you know i don't know yeah i mean i think that like it's i kind of always bristle at that sort of reductive narrative that like oh somebody's career was going bad so they killed themselves because like that happens to people that their career is going well like um it's the same kurt cobain was like as the most famous person in the in the world but like mental illness got in the way it's not like somebody's life circumstances necessarily that like caused someone to do that yeah well we're just honoring him today say rest in peace and that you know we're i'm completely heartbroken still whenever i think about it so moving along from jonathan brandis just a few bits of information on the crew. Uh, this never-ending story is directed by George Miller, but not the George Miller. Not that George of, Miller. <laughs> not the George Miller of Mad Max. I was Max. so excited when I saw that. And it's like, I can't believe this. <laughs> I, I thought, I'm like, how did I never know this? I'm like, oh, it's... I also like look, looking it up on IMDb. The George Miller that directed Never Ending Story is George Miller 1. And George Miller, the famous George Miller, is like George Miller 2. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but this George Miller, you might know best from his work uh, with Andre, the movie with the seal. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I forget what the actress's name is. She was in Veronica Mars. He also directed a movie which I had somehow never heard of before called Zeus and Roxanne about a friendship between a dog and a dolphin. I do think that that was one of those popcorn films that my family fell into because, you know, back in the day, you'd just go browse the new releases and yeah. anything family oriented you know yeah. for the younger kids like came home so yes i feel like i've seen it but i couldn't tell you one thing about it in more famous people working on this movie giorgio morador does the end credits song dreams we dream was that in the opening credits too might have been no they're they're very he i guess did the song from the first one the yeah. like hit song and like looking at the end credits of this there's like three songs that are credited to him Oh, and uh, yeah, it's hard to pick them out, but they also kind of sound the same to each other. Yeah. <laughs> like in the end credits, it starts with like a re-recording of the first Never Ending Story song. And then it just kind of hard cuts into the Dreams We Dream mm. song. And it almost sounds like it's just like a key change or something because um, <laughs> it's like on the beat. It's it's really weird. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Like I was like, is this the same song and they're just sampling Never Ending Story in the new version? But mm. that would make more sense that they just quickly cut it off because I feel like they probably wanted to have that iconic, you know, song to be like, yeah. okay, here's what you came for. Yeah. But now here's the new stuff. Yeah. Uh, the most successful crew member, I would say, though, was probably Robert Folk. He was the composer. He did all of the Police Academy movies, Rock-A-Doodle, Loaded Weapon 1, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, uh, and also Trapped in Paradise, the Nicolas Cage movie that somehow <laughs> keeps popping up in every episode that we do. And I feel, I think I've cut it out in editing of every episode we've done so far. And at some point I'm going to have to stop because it just keeps, I don't know, it keeps coming up. We just have to yes. watch it. We're going on record now saying that I think we might have to include that as just like one of those um, universe telling us that we need to watch yeah. that as maybe yeah. a staff pick. Yeah. But Robert Folk, he has like 80 other credits too. He's huge in the composing community, I guess. So for the box office information of the NeverEnding Story 2, this was released February 8th, 1991. It was released against 
Steve Martin's L.A. Story and Julia Roberts in Sleeping with the Enemy. Both films beat it at the box office, but both were looking for different audiences. This did have the extra hook, though, of the Looney Tunes short film Box Office Bunny being put on before it, which you can find on YouTube now. So this movie still ended up making about $17 million. And part of this reason is probably it was not very well received and continues not to be very well received. So pulling out the Leonard Maltin movie and video guide, 1998, uh, he has some choice words. In a, this is a weird, a weird review. So he gives it one and a half out of five stars. And he said, mom's dead, dad's busy, and the swim coach says he suffers from a high wimp factor. So it's back to Fantasia, a magic land, for the young boy who loses himself in a storybook, where a child empress, as childlike as Drew Barrymore, is in danger. Which is that? That's a weird shot at Drew Barrymore. Yeah. (laughs) He continues, pokey and cheesy, though kids might take to some of the animal sidekicks. This chapter may well end the story faster than the producers thought, followed by a direct-to-video sequel. So, yeah. Now hearing Leonard Maltin's views, he was not the only person who didn't seem very happy with this film. Yeah, I, I found the whole backstory of the author versus the filmmaking and production team like really interesting. And so, clearly, Neverending Story is based on a book by Michael Endy, I believe is how you pronounce that. So this is like a, like, this is a German book, right? Yeah. So regarding the first never-ending story, the author held a press conference to denounce, quote, that revolting movie and demanded that his name be removed from the credits. And then he's quoted saying, the makers of the film simply did not understand the book at all, and they just wanted to make money. So I don't know if he's just hurt because it did say he worked as an advisor on the film because originally he wanted a, quote, beautiful movie and claims that the director Wolfgang Peterson rewrote the script after he was done with his portion. So here's another quote. I saw the final script five days before the premiere and only as a result of a judicial verdict in Munich. I was horrified. They had changed the whole sense of the story. Fantastica, not Fantasia, reappears with no creative force from Bastion. For me, this was the essence of the book. While Peterson, Wolfgang Peterson, the director, disagreed and insisted that the film is very faithful to the novel. So when Indy saw the film, he also quoted it as thinking it was a cross between E.T. and The Day After, and he saw it as an attack on his integrity as a writer. He fought against the production company saying, I would never have been able to look myself in the mirror if I lent my name to something like that. I fought to the point of exhaustion. They tried to wear me down with dirty tricks and I kicked up a fuss, but what good did it do? So that gives you kind of a good idea of like how pissed he was. Just And that was just part one, okay? Yeah, the so, well-received movie. <laughs> so clearly he took them to court and yeah, there, it, was, it was a financial and booming success, part one. And that was part of the reason why part two was delayed because it said six years later, part two was released. And again, Andy was quoted... I heard something that part two has been released at the cinema. I haven't even watched the thing is what he said. And I did read that originally it might have been one of the producers that had said that there was so much content that they originally considered it a trilogy, which it ended up eventually being. I had never seen Never Ending Story 3, but I vividly remember the VHS box art because part three is, uh, I forget the actor's name, but it's the lead from Free Willy. 
the kid yeah. from Free Willy 1 and 2 and 3. He plays Bastion and he's in high school. And then Jack Black is a minor bully character in it. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to watch it. You know, I've seen part one and two. I remember them vividly. Part three, I had the hell of a time finding it online. And in fact, I even saw on like a Reddit page, someone said, someone is doing the Lord's work by keeping this out of people's hands. (laughs) Because the best I could find was a nine-part chopped up version of NeverEnding Story 3 on YouTube. And so I, of course, watched it. And to say that it's terrible is an understatement. Like, I love terrible movies. I really do. But the look of it, the story, everything, it's indescribable. And I don't want to shit on people that worked really hard on a movie, but I sent Joe a clip from one of the scenes, which is Rockbiter, who's in this one, on a rock bike, pedaling with his younger son, Junior, to Born to be Wild. And he literally (laughs) is singing the lyrics to Born to be Wild as he's blowing through this forest and then runs over a rabbit. It's it's insane. It's bananas. And I like I said, the look of it even just looks terrible. And that's what's even more disappointing is that they boast about how Jim Henson's Creature Workshop did all the effects on three. And so you'd think like, oh, that's cool. Like maybe it'll be really like visually appealing, but it was terrible. Four years after part two came out, that's when the third installment was released. And I really feel like that was the actual big F you to the author because if he didn't like one, I feel like it really had to have been like sort of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So Joe, do you have any other notes for production? I don't. How about you, Jason? Anything else you'd like to share before we get into the plot? No, I'm excited to talk about the plot. because. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm going to do my best and hopefully it's not overly described. So. Never-ending story two. It opens to Bastion Baltazar Bucks making an absolute fucking disaster in his kitchen. Just one thing after another, too. Yeah. Like, you just yeah. keep thinking, break. man, like, the elbow with this box of cereal. And then, like, the dad even literally, like, you think, like, the dad's just going to come in and just be like, oh, Bastion, what a mess. But, like, he literally is crunching on cereal. And it's yep. just. It's, like, stuck to his shoe. It can't get any worse. But yeah, the, um, I love that the dad's just like, Bastion, come on. And he's just sort of like, oh, sorry. Yeah, well, time to go to swim practice. So yeah, he's making a disaster in the kitchen. And then we're introduced to Barney Bucks, which I had to look up the name because I don't recall them saying the name, but he is credited as Barney Bucks, Bastion's mm. dad. And Bastion's incredibly smoking hot dad is played by John Wesley Ship, who Joe mentioned earlier, aka how I know him, Dawson Leary's dad from Dawson's Creek. We cut... From this kitchen disaster to the school pool, and kids are literally climbing over Bastion as he's trying to get out of the pool, which I just thought, again, like a big F you, because we don't really get backstory of why everyone thinks Bastion's such a loser, but that's the implication, right? Like, is that what they're implying? Is that, like, kids are literally crawling over him to get out of the pool, and they're like, get out of here, loser. Yeah, he yeah. doesn't seem like the most popular kid. No, and, like, uh, I don't know if you guys re the first one, but, like... The whole actual real world story of Bastion in the first one is he's a lot younger, but he like has a very it's like a a very similar opening to the movie where like it's a scene at breakfast with his dad, which it seems like 
they only got the the actor to play that dad for like an hour because that's the only scene the dad's in and it's mostly like one long take that's just like super slow there's no reason for it to be that slow <laughs> like should have just cut around but the dad's like a lot more like mean to bastion it's just like one of those like you should be over your dead mom you shouldn't care about that anymore and you should be on the swim team and um he's like doing poorly at school but he's a big reader and like so bastion then goes to school but these bullies confront him on the way to school and like throw him in a dumpster and so he goes to the bookstore grabs the book so bastion like goes to school and reads the never-ending story in the attic of the school and like never interacts with another person in the real world for the whole movie at the end he like flies on falcor and then falcor like chases the bullies like falcor comes into the real world and chases the bullies away but that's it. Like, that's all that Bastion does in the real world in the first movie. So there's really not a lot of backstory here for this character. Mm. I, that's what I stands out to me the most about Neverending Story 1 is that, like, terrifying attic. And I remember always thinking it was, like, his house. But then you're right. It was actually at the school, right? Because doesn't he get yeah. locked in? He shows up at school late and sees that his class is taking a math test, which he is, it's established that he doesn't like math. And so he goes <laughs> to the attic of the school to read the book instead of going to class. And then like school ends and everybody leaves and he just stays in the attic and keeps reading this book. Well, if you like that scene with him flying through the streets with Falcor, you'll love three when he's got to find Falcor in the real world because him and a bunch of other zany characters, including the baby Rockbiter, which we'll get to, it's, it's, Oh, I can't. I'm sorry. <laughs> just talking about it, it's giving me a headache. So yeah, I apparently Bastion's just a loser in every movie. I, we don't know why, because this one, of course, he's in high school. And when you have when you have those uh, impossibly blue eyes like Jonathan Brandis, then kids are going to be <laughs> jealous. Yeah, um, yeah. Like I mean, there's a theme here that like he's supposed to like that he needs to get courage, which is like touched on a couple of times. It's not really a strong theme, but like that's I think supposed to be his journey as he's trying to be brave yeah well this one definitely hits it real hard like that he's looking that he needs to gather the courage but we'll get to that because while he's in the pool he gets out and the coach immediately asks everyone who wants to join the swim team and everyone enthusiastically says me which i just i'm like i do not relate to that at all (laughs) at all i mean i'm all for like swimming and joining sports or whatever but like uh, then immediately after he's everyone says yes let's do this he just tells everyone oh well if you want to join the swim team you got to go jump off the high dive and like how old are these kids yeah that seems dangerous like that's the first thing i thought it's like this is how you how you try out i know this is now what year did this come out again no this was 92 92 so again different era different time things are different but the reason this stands out so strongly to me is because i was at that time going to like the public pool during the summers and they had a high dive and it scared the shit out of me every time I went up there. I don't know why I did it, but I honestly credit this movie, I think, as giving me the courage, the bastion courage to do it because it was what all the cool kids did is you go up there and you just pencil dive down and you hope to God you don't like belly flop because you would die um, being a scrawny little kid like Bastion is in this. But so I empathize with him a lot in this scene, even though it's really brief and it's dramatic. Cause of course, when he climbs the high dive, he stands at the edge and all of a sudden it like opens up this crazy sort of Niagara falls type experience below. And he's clearly afraid of heights, but 
I remember feeling that dread and that moment of tenseness, like even climbing the high dive. Like I could, right now I can feel like that memory of like the sweaty palms. Anyway, I digress. So I just find it really interesting then after that, you know, when he's like, has a rational fear of jumping off, then everyone's like, what's wrong? And he's like, I have a cramp. And then they all laugh at him. It's just yeah. like, what if he actually had a cramp? <laughs> I don't know. I love that. The Malton review pulled out that the coach says high wimp factor to him. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, moving on. So later, Bastion visits Coriander's bookstore because he's trying to find a book on courage. And he instead catches a glimpse of the never ending story as Coriander's looking through books. And so Coriander immediately is like, oh no, 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 no. You won't be reading that one again. And he states that stories change the second time you read them, which I actually really love. Hearing, yeah, I, know I like it, the way that he said that. Just the whole stuff with Coriander, it's like still confusing a little bit, but I do love that sort of fantasy element of it. Like later, we'll get into it of them going back. Well, I mean, it's the same thing that we're doing, like revisiting something again, you come to it as a different person and you get different things out of it. Yeah. So I thought that was really poignant. And then, um, of course, Bastion is like, hell no, I'm going to read this again and runs off. And then Coriander <laughs> cracks that kind of creepy smile and you're like, Okay. I, don't I do like the interaction where he comes in and he asks if they have how-to books and he wants something about swimming or diving. And then the guy's like, oh, I'll go to my my section on courage. It's like, you have a section on courage in your <laughs> bookstore? I mean, I know you guys have very specific sections in the video store here, but... Yes. Again, part three, we don't have to keep talking about it, but he just so happens to be the librarian at Bastion's new oh. high school after he his dad remarries and they move to a new town. It's like, uh, I just, again, I can't. Like, why is Coriander there? And why is the never-ending story in the school, high school library? It's So um, Bastion races home and he realizes that as he's flipping through the book, of the never-ending story that the pages are kind of disjointed and it's missing words. And immediately he hears the childlike empress call out to him and he's transported to Fantasia. So while that's happening, we cut to, there's a hand, hand-like castle where we meet sorceress Zaida and her minion Triface, who have created a machine that drains Bastion's memories every time he uses the Orin to make a wish. Now, I don't know how you guys feel, but like these images definitely are very, again, like burned, ingrained in my mind. Like I, until I watched it again, I totally had forgotten about that scene where like Nimbly comes in and she's got no face. Yeah. Oh, right. And then she puts that cream on and then it's just all of a sudden she's got, you know, her face. So her her goal, her main goal is to just get Bastion to make numerous wishes. So he, so he forgets why he came to Fantasia because every time he makes a wish, it crystallizes and forms into a hard David Bowie labyrinth ball um, of memories. And so Zaida hires the spy bird nimbly to accompany Bastion so that he can coax wishes out of him. And then we cut back to Bastion in his little Silver City boat, cruising along and nimbly hops on the boat. And again, another callback that I, I found really interesting is that the water that the boat's cruising in is acid. Yeah. And yeah. then he drops the little feather. And I think that was particularly horrifying because it reminded me a lot of another movie that I love that has very like adult moments is Return to Oz. Yeah. Oh, when sure. No, Dorothy, I was thinking of that movie a lot with this. Yeah, like Dorothy's warned to like step on the stones because if she touches the sand, it's the deadly desert and you'll turn into sand. And so, I don't know, I would just be really interested to see if I did more research to see if there are any correlations between the two, if people worked on them. 
or not? Yeah, like this one, like compared to the first one, this one feels a lot more like horror forward. Like it's a lot more like scary imagery. The first one is like a lot more like storybook imagery. The first stuff you see in Fantasia in the first one is like a snail and a little dwarf guy and a little guy with a hat. Like it's sort of like uh, Alice in Wonderland. And this one right away is just sort of like, there's a bad guy this time, which there really wasn't a bad guy in the first one. And she's got this castle. She's got henchmen. It's like scary. And there's like, it's a lot more violent. Like the giant things are violent. I do love too that when they roll into Silver City, Bastion's like, everything looks normal to me. And it's just like these weird, what are they? They're it's not like clowns. Wide, it's an eyes wide shut party. Yeah, they've going got on. those masks on. <laughs> yeah, everyone's just kind of like, like, They're like dancing around. Yeah, what what are those things I'm trying to think of? Like masquerade type yeah. things. I have yeah. creepy like Halloween dolls that look like that just for the sake of being creepy. So yeah, I love that those are like full grown, like live people just walking around casually. So then, you know, everything appears to be normal, but then the ground starts shaking and then we immediately get these giant crustacean-like creatures. That's the only way I could describe them, that they dub the giants spinning um razor things and they're i don't know just like their teeth just chomped all the time right isn't that the big close-up that we saw it's just like their teeth are constantly chattering so bastion narrowly escapes from these oh and and then in that time nimbly obviously is like peace i'm out i'm not helping anyone and so bastion narrowly escapes the giants he dupes them into you know the acid lake and then he falls through a porthole that spits him out in the ship of secrets is what i wrote down i think that's what they call it and that was another particularly nightmare fuel scene not necessarily because of the like diva that's kind of singing as she's talking and then the woman that's got like a giant fan that's just blowing i don't know streams up but it was like that really creepy mud guy yeah I don't know how you guys felt about it, but just his face and just the close-up and it's all oily and scary. Like, yes, this I feel like goes into your theme that you were talking about earlier, Jason, of things that terrify you as a child. And there was also the weird half-human, half-harp thing too. I thought that was creepy. But like I said, I do I do love that Beyonce-type fan blowing and that woman just constantly oh, yes yeah. everywhere because then immediately like it cuts back to like bastion up above and she's there but no one else is it's like wait what happened why is she up there now and how did she do it like did she just blow up there or what while he's down though in the ship of secrets one of them does sort of this imagery thing of the childlike empress where she's ta- able to talk to bastion and she explains to him that he must name the entity that is destroying Fantasia, which is a similar plot point from one, isn't it? Yes. So in the first one, I'm just going to get into this right now. There's a huge difference between the first one and the second one in that Bastion doesn't go into Fantasia in the first one. Mm -hmm. Like it's all Atreyu and he's reading about Atreyu's like adventure. He doesn't go in until at the very end. So there's this thing in the first one called the nothing that is like erasing parts of fantasia and it eventually erases everything but like one grain of sand is all that's left and the childlike empress has the grain of sand and shows it to bastion and they talk about that um it's up to him he has to give the empress a name and that is going to stop the nothing which they don't really explain why i feel like maybe there's something in the book about that like because this is that seems like this is the point that like the you were describing that the author didn't like in the movie that when fantasia is re remade from the grain of sand that bastion apparently was supposed to be more involved in this but all he does is he names the empress which you do not hear 
Bastion says that he's going to give the Empress the name of his mother because he liked his mother's name. And like through the whole movie, he's just reading the story and he doesn't realize that he's going to be involved in the story. Like there's a there's a point like halfway through where he like sneezes or laughs and the characters react to it. And then he's like, wait, they couldn't have heard me. But then at the end, they like start directly addressing Bastion. We need you to name the Empress. And he's like, oh, you're talking to me. So he like screams out the name in the attic as the storm's happening. And I think you intentionally can't hear what the name is because it's like weirdly like a lot of syllables. But that like saves the day from the nothing. And then the Empress, I guess, has a name, but we don't call her that in this movie. We call her the childlike Empress and they don't ever name Bastion's mother. I was like paying attention on my second watch of this. Like, do they name the mother? And they don't call her by name and she's only credited as Bastion's mother. Mm. Um, So Mm. that's, it's kind of weird. So the plot is kind of similar here where it's like, instead of the nothing, we get the emptiness, which is kind of the same thing. And he also has to name it. He, he names it the emptiness, but that's like another thing, which was another thing where like, I was confused about like how they adapted this book. Are they like still adapting part of the book from the first movie in this one? It's weird because he also just shows up in Fantasia and is like, oh yeah, I remember this. I remember this guy. It's like, he wasn't there at all. Like the only <laughs> time he's in there in the first movie is all of a sudden he's riding on Falcor and they're flying around and he waves at Atreyu. He waves at Rockbiter. And then Falcor comes into the real world and they chase the bullies. And that's literally it. As soon as the bullies go in the trash, it's like freeze frame credits. So he doesn't explore Fantasia at all. Because especially like coming back to this movie and watching this one first, I'm like, there's no recap here. We don't know if this is the first movie you're watching, which a lot of kids, six years after the first one, they're going to watch this first. They're just like, oh, yeah, I know this place. I remember this guy. Um, But they don't really like, I don't, it's like the weirdest thing to me. That's like a sequel that just sort of ignores everything that happened in the first one and pretends that like, oh, well, you don't remember anyway. I don't know. It's another good parallel to Return to Oz because they do that same thing where Dorothy just knows where everything is and it's like oh the deadly desert like we never even knew what that was it's like oh I need to get to the scarecrow he's he's the new wizard it's like he is I don't why and why him and then yeah I think my impression of that movie is that maybe that's what happened in the books because there's like a lot of Oz books yeah um and that like maybe they were adapting the books more than like the movie especially because like I think Return to Oz was like a Disney movie and the first wizard is not a Disney movie they're just like maybe those books are public domain now I don't know but it was sort of like they're adapting more closer to the book so it can't be like we're just making a sequel to this movie that we don't own the rights to yeah, I see the parallels to of one and two because we even have that plot where like Bastion's dad is now reading it and yeah. having that same reaction. The same of, experience of like, wait, this is about me? Yeah. Bastion? Yeah, as soon as he picks it up, it's like, oh, here we go. That's the one thing I, I have a hard time too is like it just kind of jumps back and forth between the hand castle stuff and then like what's going on in Silver City. So Bastion learns somehow... I don't but he's remember. supposed to name the whatever's happening. Yeah, the childlike empress tells him that he needs to basically name the entity that's destroying Fantasia, but then also he needs to use Orin in his quest to do so. And so it's kind of left vague because she kind of is zooming in and out. Plus, I was also, I made the note, it was very like Princess Leia Organa, where she's just like, yes. help me, Bastion. Yeah. You're our only hope. Is I, She says something like that that's yeah. very similar to Star no, Wars. No, I have the same note. And even like when he like goes down the chute into that ship of secrets or whatever it's called, it's like the scene in Star Wars where they go through the garbage chute. Mm-hmm. Um, so that whole scene is like very Star Wars. 
Um, so yeah, Vashon learns of the hand castle and tries to find recruits to help him travel there for answers. And Treyu shows up, volunteers, and then Bastion uses Orin to make his first witch, which is a terrifying dragon, so that he can use it to fly there and also scare the inhabitants of the castle. But surprise, the plan backfires as the dragon is clearly out of control, terrorizes everyone in Silver City once again, those poor people, and then Falcor just arrives on the scene thankfully, which I don't know why Bastion didn't even think to just be like, why don't I just use Falcor to get there? Because I think that's yeah. what he initially says, right? Is like, we just need something that'll need get some us there quick. flying dragon. Yeah, and that's literally what he is, right? Yeah. A luck dragon? Yeah. Isn't that what they're officially called? Yeah, he's called? a luck dragon. So I don't know why that slipped his mind, but poor Falcor, you know, second fiddle. Um, well, and it's so weird that like, because the bird guy has been trying to get him to wish the whole time up until this point. And he's been like, uh, I don't know. Even like, it's like, everybody would be really happy if you turn this ocean of acid into like water for us. And he's like, well, maybe it's supposed to be that way. Maybe it keeps the city shiny. Yeah. <laughs> and even when he's like almost being murdered by the giants, then he's like, no, I'm just going to climb up the wall, like up yeah. this rope. Right. Because there's like that scene is like it's not shot very well, but like because the bird is like there up watching him and he's about to get like pushed into the acid. And the bird's just like, just wish, just wish. And he's like, no, I don't want to. And then the bird throws him a rope the, and the rope has been sitting there the whole time. Mm. And so it's like I think it's supposed to be like, well, the bird is not going to let him actually get hurt, even though he's trying to work for the bad guy. But yeah, it's it's not it's just weird. <laughs> where he like waits to the last second and then he throws them the rope and then he climbs up the rope to get away instead of wishing. I also wonder if Zaida is secretly watching all this or hearing about it and getting really pissed. She's just like, he could have just died. Yeah. Like, why did you help him? But clearly, like you said, Nimbly has a heart and he's trying to be, you know, do the right thing because he does end up caring about Bastion later. But back to Falcor and the out-of-control dragon. So now, you know, a chase ensues. They follow the dragon towards towards the hand castle, which has these beams of light coming out of sort of the tips that look like the fingers. And then the dragon gets caught in the beam and blows up. And so Bastion and Falcor back off and celebrate. And I, I wanted to bring up a few things here uh, before we go further. First, I don't know if you caught it, but the dragon's name is Smurg, which yeah. is the parody of Smog, the dragon from The Hobbit. Yeah. Oh, I didn't it's even very catch close that. To Smog. And also, just reading the Wikipedia of what happens in the book, the book's version of this part in the story is that in spite of the warnings of Atreyu and Bastion's other friends, Bastion uses Auron to create creatures and dangers for himself to conquer, which causes some negative side effects for the rest of Fantasia. And I find that that's an interesting take on his kind of chosen one status, because yeah. Jason and I have had conversations about this before where I feel that the the whole chosen one narrative of, that you can find in any media really affected me negatively as a kid where there's a lot that I just put towards, oh, it's going to be fine because I'm important or whatever. And it did not turn out to be the case. And I kind of traced that, uh, the romanticism of that chosen one trope back to this movie. I mean, there, I'm sure there's probably earlier stuff that I encountered this in, but this was kind of the big one that I remember really being into where I would have seen that. Uh, and I think that is a really interesting twist on it if it would have made the movie of, yeah, he's the chosen one, but he's basically creating that situation for himself at the expense of others. I was like, oh, that's really subversive. And that would have been really cool to see in yeah. something. Right, because it is like a colonizer kind of story of like somebody's going to come into this foreign place and 
save everybody from themselves because they don't know what they really need. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think like also at this point in the movie, we've sort of like established, like, I think the idea is we've established what the plot is and what Bastion's trying to do. I don't understand it. Like, do you <laughs> understand what is happening in Fantasia between the emptiness, like making things disappear and what the uh, witch character is, what her plot is? Because it seems like she wants Bastion to forget who he is. Why? Because he's the only, I'm guessing, just because he's the only one that would try to stop it from happening or only one that maybe can stop it from happening. And it's like she causing the emptiness? Yeah, I thought I remember reading more in depth about like that character is obviously more fleshed out in the novel and also in the other like subsequent series because I think there's like an animated show that she... I thought what I read was that her and the childlike empress in the original story, and I may be wrong, were sisters and that it was that classic, like she's the sister that went crazy and went down the dark path. Okay. So she was trying to just like destroy everything while the childlike empress is like obviously the light, you know, trying to save everything. I want to say if we dug deeper into it, it's probably got more of that storyline, but you would never know that. (laughs) Well, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think you're supposed to assume a lot here. That's not actually explained um, because this character just shows up now in the second movie. She's not mentioned at all in the first one, but she's the first thing we see. And so it's sort of implied that like she's got an evil plan and there's something bad happening and like maybe she's behind it. But it's this this movie is weird because he sort of defeats her like halfway through and then he, she's like hanging out with him. So it's not like the the standard like we have to get to the bad guy and defeat them right at the end. It's just like the whole time she's really trying to like subvert him or seduce him into doing evil things or wishes or whatever like the story is different because it starts out like he's got to fight these like creatures and whatever and then it kind of changes but i feel like it's just weird because i don't understand what we're trying to do at any given point like even like right now when they're like chasing the smog dragon and there's the hand lasers and whatever they're like trying to stop the dragon because he created the dragon but then even at that point then they're like trying to find the witch's castle and then they're trying to find the empress it's just kind of like we're going point a to point b but i don't ever know why we're doing it i felt like every time i would stop in the middle of the movie i'd be like what are we trying to do right now i don't <laughs> understand what we're doing i don't know it it just seemed really weird. like i was like excited for somebody to try and explain the plot to me because i don't understand the plot of this movie i think the assumption is that it's a dark, scary castle. So, of course, that's the person that's involved Evil? with whatever's going yeah. on. But, like, that's what Bastion doesn't quite know is, like, why and how and all those things. And so, naturally, let's go there and find out. But it's not a very good plan because he's like, come on, who's with me? And then when they get there, which we're getting to, they literally are like, let us in. And it's like, <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, like, I don't know what their plan is, but I also don't know what her plan is. Because I guess if she's causing this emptiness and like Bastion just shows up and it's like, well, we got to take him off the board because he's going to wreck my plans. But it doesn't really feel like that after a while. It's sort of like, I don't know. And like, she's, I think you're supposed to know that she's like bad because she's scary. But like, is she, I, I kept like also thinking about like, is she supposed to be like a witch? Because they never really call her that, but she has like magic powers. I don't know. She's like a really weird character to me. Yeah, the character stuff that I read about is she actually is called considered a witch, but they don't say that in the movie. 
No. Like, obviously, she's so fabulous that you would never be like, ooh, that's a witch. You're just like, okay. Like, for me, that scene when she's turning around in that chair, it's just like, yes! Yeah. <laughs> those big shoulder blades, everything. I am Zaida, the owner yeah, of this no, castle. No, she reminds like, me of, um, what's her name from Sleeping Beauty? Maleficent? Yes. Like, this big, like, fantastic witch or whatever. Like, a fabulous witch. Yeah. If Sean Young played her, because that's who I kept thinking of for some reason, too. Every time I saw her, like, I know it's not Sean Young, but... Not specifically on that, but, like, I think it is also, like, maybe another... And this must have come out after Return to Oz. Because, like, even the scene at the beginning when she doesn't have a face and she, like, puts on a face, like, reminds me of... There's that character in Return to Oz that, like, has a bunch of different faces. Mm. Yeah, Mumby. She has the different heads. She yeah, takes yeah. the heads off. So you're exactly right. This is like almost the same movie, but in a different format. Yeah, yep. and it's not as good. <laughs> oh, Return, no. to Oz, Return to Oz was 85, actually, which is earlier than I thought. Oh, wow. But yeah, I mean, lots of questions. I don't think, again, they're probably thinking it's a kid's movie. People aren't going to be asking right. these questions. You just kind of go along with the ride. and It's very much like, yeah, this is what we're doing, so this is what we're doing. The like loss of memory is like a bigger theme here, too, because there's an earlier scene with the dad where he like makes a comment about the sweater and he's like, mom made this sweater. And like the dad, like somehow didn't remember that this mom <laughs> made this sweater that he clearly wears every day. Cause it's falling apart. So, and like, I feel like there's a lot of stuff that's like intended to be clear in this movie that is not clear. <laughs> that Like the idea of him forgetting his mom is like clearly something that he's afraid of before the movie starts that like, it's been a long time since she died. He's worried about forgetting her. Um, and that's like ultimately the worst thing that happens to him. So I think that like they're trying to say something about like moving on and growing up and forgetting things, but it's like they don't really tie it all together. So, okay. So the next plot point was after the Smurg blow up dragon situation, they decide to land because they obviously portray you is on horseback and there's no way he's going to catch up to them in time. So they're like, all right, let's wait for Atreyu. And so we're reintroduced to Rockbiter, which maybe you have more thoughts on part one. I just don't remember his relevance and why we feel like we need to have him in this movie other than maybe just having this like cutesy kids moment of like, look, there's a baby now. And it's yeah. horrifying. Ridiculous. Oh yeah, the, the realistic eyes. Yeah. Like it's punching Falcor in the nose and trying yeah. to like eat a butterfly or whatever it's doing. Yeah. I mean, and apparently it's a mystery as to who played Rockbiter in this movie. <laughs> like the voice? <laughs> yeah, like no one knows. It's been lost to time. Oh, that's sad. Poor guy. I think it's intentional to like have some characters come back to like tie it to like this is the, this is a sequel. Like even if you watch the trailer, like, like the trailer was on the DVD that I looked at. They're like all of your favorite characters are coming back. Falcor, Rockbiter, the childlike empress, who is like barely in the first movie. <laughs> and looks totally different. And too. was never called the childlike empress in the first movie. So like, I think that's why he's here is to be like, oh yeah, you remember from the first movie, this is the same thing. Uh, like the, the first time he shows up in the first movie, he's just like, they just show up in Fantasia and there's some weird people. And then Rockbiter shows up and he's like eating rocks and the rocks are falling and they're like, oh, what's going on? And then they move into the story, but he's just there as like background. They're just like, there's weird creatures in this world. The main reason I picked this movie 
is because I have this memory that does not exist. Like I remember the scene that is not in either of the movies. I was like trying to find it. Uh, I remember what I thought was Bastion talking to Rockbiter in this like dark room. And maybe I'm remembering the um, Ship of Secrets or whatever, because it's like a, a dark place and there's like people around him. But I remember like as he's like asking Rockbiter about like what's going on and like Rockbiter is like really afraid of it and like says it's the nothing. And like that was my fear from this movie. It wasn't the horror elements or like these scary creatures or whatever the idea of this thing called the nothing that is just like making stuff disappear it's like annihilation it's like death it's like the fear of like just ceasing to exist for no reason that was the scary thing to me from these movies and it's not exactly what happens in either of these movies (laughs) but it's like they get close to that and like i think that it's supposed to be like oh people are forgetting about fantasy stuff or story it's like the thing of like oh if you stop believing in santa claus if you thought stop believing in fairies then they don't exist anymore it's just like more complicated and there's more plot stuff around it but yeah so that's like that was kind of a bummer coming back to these because like my memory of them is this thing that does not exist in either of the movies i'd like jumbled stuff together in my mind and like i feel like that's a scarier concept i think that maybe that's what i was afraid of as a kid is like being afraid of death of like what happens and like just non-existence. And that's what stuck with me. Um, <laughs> not the the weird creatures that they make out of puppets or whatever. Well, going back to Rockfighter, uh, Treyu rolls up with Artemis, I think is the horse's name. And he has a big sack with him. And he says the, the reason it took him so long is because he convinced, I didn't catch the name, basically somebody to help them storm the castle. Yeah, they like he calls them warriors, I think. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. Okay, so then the next day or later that night, they arrive at the castle and there's that scene we were talking about earlier where, well, first off, let me back up. They're sneaking up to the castle and one of the beams hits Bastion and he is like frozen and like in tremendous pain and Atreyu uses the Orin to reflect the beam and blow up the lasers, which is great. But I'm like, okay, now the rules are kind of changing because the dragon was hit with that laser and, and blew up <laughs> so why is bastion okay because he had been hit for a pretty long lengthy time before he was like oh uh orin block yeah i think it is weird too like maybe now's the time to talk about it atreyu this is a problematic character he's the main character in the first one and like he has the orin the whole time in that one which is like it doesn't grant wishes in the first one it's just like supposed to give him power or something or like symbolize that he's the chosen one so it is interesting that he uses it here but like in the first one he's described as like a warrior who hunts the purple buffalo on the plane i don't like i haven't read the book this is clearly like supposed to be like a native american stereotype character and his costume in this one is clearly like that in the first movie he's cast like i I didn't look into the the racial backgrounds of these actors but the kid is like looks real white Mm -hmm. um this time he is sort of like ambiguous race he's supposed to be a native american this is like it's weird i would have guessed and, latino i think that's what i was telling joe yeah. that i he looked more latino to he me he doesn't but, look native um yeah. like that's the focal character of the first movie and this whole sort of franchise is a, a treyu is this like native american warrior and it's not they don't even cast a native to play it i don't know it that's the thing that like dated real bad for me with these like 
just first watching this one and when they're like, oh, it's a tray when he walks in, it's like, oh, that costume. Just, uh. <laughs> I remember there is a line that Jonathan Brandis says to him when they're getting into their argument too. He's like, why don't you go back and hunt buffalo? It's like, oh. Yeah, he calls him a country boy. Yeah. <laughs> mm, yeah, and there are other cringy moments too with just the, the line delivery of the way he's saying, like, what do you mean? Like, yeah. just very, you know what I mean? Like very um, stereotypical. And then- the stuff that was killing me too, that I don't even, I didn't put in here. I don't even remember when it happened, but the, it was so forced. It was like shoehorned in. And I'm like, we don't need this comedy. Like, just leave it alone. But those scenes where he asked like, him for a high five, is that give me a, give me five, give you five of what? It's like, come on. Or and there's like not even a, re- a reason for him to do that at that point. He's just like going to go leave to do something. Uh, I, I don't think, know. It's, I think that's weird. when. So after the lasers blow up, we could circle back to where we're going. Like when the lasers blow up, the giants pop out and then they're like, oh shit, we need some reinforcements. So that's when Atreyu busts out those eggs. And it, to me, was very reminiscent for some reason. Do you guys remember that movie Toys with Robin Williams? Oh yeah. That's what it reminded me of is that finale where like they're kind of battling against the... And I love Toys, but man, what the reveal of who the warriors were in this movie is a real letdown. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just those fireworks and just, yeah. just like wind up toys effects. with fireworks yeah. that don't seem to be firing at anything in particular. It's like, I don't think you're helping very well. Much. The giants are just literally like tapping side to side, like, oh no, and then they fall over. But well, and some um, of them like don't even move, like, some of them take off and some of them just like uh, sputter and stop. I think that's the scene then when he's like, all right, give me five. Mm-hmm. And he's like, give me five of what? I feel like they, those jokes are all like really bunched up right in this section of the movie too. Like it just seemed like, I, I don't know, it was a weird thing. Like at that pass of the script, like we'll, we'll fit all that like fish out of water comedy like right here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, so after the big reveal of, you know, the warriors that take out, quote unquote, take out the um, giants, Bastion, for some reason, makes a wish to, he's like, I need another way to get into the castle. So like these steps appear. I was like, how fucking pissed would you be too that like it only does like four steps and then it stops and clearly he needs more. And I almost wish I could go into the movie and scream at him and be like, I wish for the rest of the steps that would get me into the castle yeah. instead of the way it ended up, which was like one at a time and he had to keep wishing. Well, and I feel like the first wish that he made was he wanted a way in. He didn't want part of a way in. The wish should have got him all the way there. Exactly. And who's regulating these wishes? Like Zaida, like, ooh, I'm going to get him with this one. Like, they really like paced it poorly that like he needs to wish a lot of times, but he doesn't, he's like only done like one or two wishes at this point, And we're like halfway through the movie. Um, so there's like, okay, now he needs like 15 wishes right here. Yep. And let's also not forget about his fear of heights. So at some point, did he not like think that was like, completely terrifying because those weren't sturdy steps they were literally just like little wedges that were coming out of the building so i would have been like i'm gonna die like i'm gonna fall (laughs) off i'm gonna not i'm gonna slide right off the end of one of these and he went up pretty pretty high yeah it's almost like somebody else wrote this whole section of the movie because like there's so many comedy beats here too because even he's waiting at the gate and the gate's coming up and all the giant things are on the other side and he starts joking around with them about like communicating and like people communicate different ways uh with the smile or it's just like i feel like they're trying at that point to like hit the point again that like he doesn't have courage and he needs to have courage but he's like trying to joke his way out of the scene it's just awkward like i feel like it doesn't achieve what it's trying to do at all right there yeah well he inevitably does get into the castle and 
poor Atreyu uh, down in his luck gets captured and he's suspended by a chain over like basically a giant lava pit, which Bastion thankfully gets to him before the giants can mess up those plans. And they knock one of the giants over and it shatters into a million pieces. And so that's like, again, one of our first clues that there's nothing inside. It's empty. And so that is the moment that Bastion's like, oh, it's the emptiness. Like he names it. And I just look at it and I'm at that point I was thinking, well, wouldn't Bastion then be like, aren't we're done, right? Like this yeah. is it. Like I, yeah. I named it. Like yeah. now what? Like why do I have to keep going? Because that's what the, happened in the first one, right? Yeah, like the the climax of the first one is he names the Empress and then everything is fixed and it's wonderful and he just gets to fly around for a while. This is the point in the movie where it's like, I don't understand what we're doing. What have we been doing this whole time? Because he, like even then, what's her name? I can't I even remember her name. <laughs> She's like, oh, you've defeated me. And he named the thing. And so it's like, what are we what are we doing then? Like, what are we, then they're like, oh, well, now we got to go see the Empress. I don't know. It's just so weird. I think she says something because I made a note. I think she like manipulates him into thinking because he says something like, well, stop, stop what you're doing with the childlike Empress. And I think she has some bullshit reason of like, oh, I can't, I can't, we have to go there to do this. And that's why he's like, oh, okay. But all right, let's forget all that. He's got Oren. Couldn't he just be like, I wish to be right in front of the childlike empress yeah. right now. And yeah. then be like, yo, girl, what's up? Now what? I don't know. I feel know. like this is like the problem every story that introduces wishes has is like, you can wish for anything, but but there's a lot of actually, it's a lot more complicated than that. You can't just wish for whatever. Like it always bothered me in Aladdin when he gets the three wishes. And I think the first wish is he wants to be a prince. And then the rest of the movie, they're like, well, you got to tell the princess that you're not really a prince. It's like, he is a prince. He wished to be a prince. And he (laughs) is now. Like, that's just as much right to be a prince as like most other royal families. And not only that, but the genie in that movie breaks his own rules too. You know, he had all those rules, like very specific, like I can't bring people back from the dead. It's not great, blah, 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 all this stuff. And then there's that scene where he's drowning and he's like, come on, you got to rub the lamp. And then he's like, well, that's good enough. Okay. Like uh, (laughs) I'll save you. That's your wish. Cause he's clearly like out of it. His mouth is covered or whatever. It's just like, so Aladdin didn't say shit, but like the genie just took it upon himself to be like, I'll save you. That's cause that's what you want. What if Aladdin like spit out water and was like, the fuck I want that? No, I would rather be dead. You used a lot of my wishes. You, I get another one. So anyway, I, again, I digress. Wrong movie. So, uh, well, yeah, and here's another one that he could say. I just want Fantasia to be back to the way it was before yeah. I got here. Yeah. Done. And then be like, and then I wish Zaida would fuck all the way off and not be here anymore. Goodbye. I mean, I mean just... the only thing that I can like try and figure out that might make sense is that like all of this was like he was sort of being manipulated into he needed to do that final wish that he does at the end of the movie that saves the day that like the Empress was somehow orchestrating this whole thing so that he would make the right wish. But I don't know. That's a stretch. It doesn't it's not they don't really connect those dots. Well, and we get even more wasted wishes by him being like, I wish the doors would open. Like they don't even try to like knock it down. He's just like, at this point, I think Bastion's just wish crazy. Let's just imagine he's just like totally uninhibited now. He's just like, yeah, whatever. I wish my shoes would be, you know, tied, (laughs) you know, whatever. I'm just too lazy. I don't even think to bother. Cause I suppose we have to give him the benefit of a doubt. He has no idea. So he just thinks he can literally wish for anything and there's no consequences. 
Well, and it's weird because they don't even play that note that you'd would with like a kid character of like, oh, I can wish for anything. I'm going to do some like stuff that I shouldn't do and like get away with stuff. It's like he is like really like hesitant to wish at all. And then he just wishes dumbly. Yeah. Okay. So, yep. They blow a wish to get in there. We're introduced to Zaida, which is, like I said earlier, that iconic chair that's turning around, which I also do have to say, like, whoever did the production design with this is pretty great. Like, the sets, I loved everything that I saw, even though there isn't a lot to it. Like, we don't see a lot, but like the little that we do, they do a great job. Yeah, I like the matte paintings they do for a lot of the backgrounds too, especially yeah. later on in the movie, I felt. Yeah, and the cover art's iconic, I think, for the cover of this DVD or VHS, whichever. So anyway, yep, Zaida can't do anything about the childlike empress, so they have to go to her, and she volunteers to be the prisoner, and she insists that Bastion travel with her in her Zobel. They're traveling, and then that's when, you know, Treyu starts catching up to something. He realizes something's not right. He doesn't trust Zayed at all, and he even tells Falcor at some point, like, we got to get them separated because I don't think this is good news. And while they're traveling, we get that really creepy scene where she gifts him that belt, yeah, which he puts on and he disappears. But, like, it's super creepy because the close-up of him, it's just like that, or the belt, it's like a real eye that closes. And I don't know why in my brain, I kept thinking the version of the film that I saw as a kid that he went blind when that happened. Oh. But I think it's not that. It's actually that he just can't see himself and he doesn't like it. So that's why he wishes to be back. But I was convinced when I watched it for some reason that made it so much more terrifying to me that like you can be invisible, but then you're blind. That would make it more interesting too. Because she says that line where she's like, do you wish to see yourself again? And that's where I think, again, my brain was going there associating like her basically saying like, oh, you can make a wish so you can actually see and be invisible. But there's like, I feel like there's weird, something weird in this scene too, where it looked to me like that they reused the footage because he like puts on the belt to go listen to what Atreyu is talking to Falcor about. But it, it almost looked to me like they just reused the footage from the first time he put on the belt. Mm-hmm. And then you see like footsteps just like close-ups on footsteps. It almost seems like there was a reshoot where they shot some like scenes of footsteps to be like, oh, well, this is when he goes out and listens to them. I don't know. It, it, like, it was edited kind of funky. And that's exactly what's happening is he does finally use the stupid belt. He wanders off somewhere. I think that's when Atreyu sees the wish machine and then has a conversation with Falcor that, oh, we got to get him away from her. He knows the jig is up that every time he makes a wish that they're draining memories. Because Nimbly's looking in the ball, and that's when I think we see that scene that you were talking about with the sweater where his mom made that, knitted that sweater for him. And so, of course, naturally, Bastion sneaks up on Atreyu and Falcor having this discussion about how he has to get Orin away from him because... If it's the last thing he does and then Bastion gets pissed because he doesn't realize the context and then starts feuding with Atreyu, they battle, he rolls off the end of the little hill. Bastion has this real dick look on his face and he's just like, well, he had it coming or something like that. And it's like, who are you? Like, I mean, Right, right. That's why, I mean, I think it's supposed to be that he's like being seduced to be evil and he doesn't even care about his friend anymore. But it's like real confusing in the moment. Like, it seems like maybe it was an accident, but he's like, well, that's fine. I, I, I'm i glad he's dead. I don't. It's just confusing. Well, because it looked to me like 
it was almost like his reaction was like, oh, he just fell over, but he's fine. And then he goes back to the Zobel and that's when they see the little wish machine getting lowered. And he's like, oh shit, Atreyu was telling me the truth. And that's when he has remorse. And then Falcor's flying off with him with uh, Atreyu's body. So while all that's happening, we then have this sort of cut back story of the real world. The Bastion's dad is actually looking for him because he's gone missing. He finds the never-ending story, sees an address in the front of the book. He goes to the bookstore and talks to Coriander, who's like, oh, that's that ain't mine. That's not my book. I don't know what you're talking about. And then, of course, magically, the address is wiped from the inside of the book. So I think Coriander has some line about, like, have you tried reading that never-ending story? Or have you ever tried engaging with your son or something like that? Basically implying that, like, he isn't present in his son's life, correct? Yeah. So that what we're kind of, like, hitting the underlining tone of everything that's going on with Bastion's dad? Because... He comes back with the police and the entire store is completely wiped out with a big for sale sign in the front. So he starts reading the story. He starts realizing that Bastion's part of it. And then he was engaging more in the story. And where he kind of picks up is he's seeing Bastion making this kind of treacherous journey through the desert all of a sudden. Does he just, so he leaves the whole, he leaves the witch and the bird and the everything. He's just like going to try and find a Treyu now. I think is that what happened? I think that's what happened. That's what happens because at some point then, remember, he like falls into the water oh, and yeah. feels like he's drowning. Oh, he, he holds yeah. onto the branch and that's when his dad's like, come on, fight, Bastion. You know, he's like super involved. Because then, unless I'm missing something, you know, Zaida, they, they say, well, her and the giants travel through the ground because they can go at the speed of light because that's the voiceover from the dad. That it's faster than like traveling by land. So they go down into the earth to try to find Bastion. And Bastion eventually ends up at Silver City again, which is now in total shambles and is ruined. He's told he has two wishes left. He uses one of the wishes to honor his mother and bring Atreyu back to life. Um, and in return, he loses his memory of his mother, which is devastating. So Zaida and the giants appear. They come up to the ground. And, you know, she's, she's kind of egging him on like you have one wish left. And Bastion confidently wishes that Zaida would have a heart. And his wish fills her with emotion to the point where a single tear drops from her cheek and hits the floor and totally restores Fantasia and destroys her and the giants in process. So yay, everything's great. It's returning back to normal. That's exactly what they needed to do. And here comes the child empress rolling in on her boat. And she tells Bastion that in order for him to destroy the emptiness, he had to fill it with love, which there's the difference between the first film and the second one and then she really just hits the nail over the head by saying you know okay so here's a stipulation if you want to go back home you got to basically face your fear get your courage and then the ground splits open and there's that niagara nightmare that he had when he was up on the diving board and in order for him to go home he had to find his courage jump which barney his dad was reading he's like come on bastion you could do it bastion gathers all the courage he has he jumps there's a knock at the door. His dad goes down and there is Bastion and they're reunited and it feels so good. So that's the end. So I guess like at this point, it seems like the theme of the movie is like filling the emptiness with love. If like he's like still feeling sad about his mom being dead and he feels this emptiness that you're supposed to just like fill it with love, like that he's depressed and you just like try and be happy. Uh, I don't know. So overall, what do you guys think? Do you feel like this holds up? I mean, this movie's bad, right? I enjoy it. I mean, it's. I don't think it's Jonathan Brandis' best movie. I think that's Ladybugs, but... Oh, um, yeah, 100%. 
I think that like it has interesting production design for sure. And like, I think that the script doesn't connect the dots for us. And I think that Jonathan Brandis does pop. Like he is like interesting as a performer, um, especially as like, cause this, you said this is his first feature. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think that he like, especially if you go back and watch the first one, like the kid actors in that are not very good, but like, he's interesting in this one. It's just like, I, I feel like to me, like I don't understand what's going on at any point in this movie. I was just going to say, I, I can't speak for Joe, but one of the problems I have often when we're talking about these, any film on this podcast is that I have such a hit of nostalgia for a lot of the things that we're watching. And so that was just like the net. Like, I guess overall, the net isn't probably like a great movie when you watch it now after all these years. But like, I gave it a higher rating than Joe just because I have such nostalgia for it and my love for Sandra Bullock. And so that's why I really struggle with a lot of these. I don't know. I think that might be a wrap on Never Ending Story 2. You guys have anything else you'd like to share? I'm good. Well, this is the moment that everyone tunes into here, in my opinion, (laughs) because it is time to challenge Joe to pick a movie from a particular section of the video store. And Jason, do you want to jump in here too and see what you can think of? And maybe by the end of my minute in pondering this, we might check in with your thought as well, and then we can choose from one of those. Maybe. If no I, pressure. <laughs> if I participate, does this erase my late fees? We'll say sure. Well, okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give Joe the challenge. I'm going to give him a minute. I'll let you, Jason, just separately think about something that yeah. you would maybe pick. And Don't stress out about it too much. After the minute is up, the two of you can discuss. Well, Joe's going to have to pick something within a minute. Yeah, I'll pick something. And then something. after that point, Unless I fail miserably. Joe can decide whether or not he wants to keep the one that he picked or go with something that, Jason, you would suggest. We'll we'll find out what you pick instead uh, first. And then if we both fail horribly, we'll go with what's in the basket. What's in the basket, which we always have a reserve. And just like Joe, I am always super excited by my own pick, and I hope (laughs) that it would get picked, but... That's not the point of this. It is. So I feel like if if I'm not happy with my answer, I'll go with what's in the basket. So, so I'll read the selection first, and then I'll hit the timer. Ready? All right. So, the section of the video store you must choose a video from is a '90s erotic thriller. Ooh! (laughs) And I'm going to start the clock. Are you ready? Starting now. What erotic thriller? I can only think of uh, the Nev Campbell. Was that Denise Richards in it too with Kevin Bacon? What was that film? That Wild Things? Wild Things. Uh, Jason, do you have ideas? You don't have to say them yet. Oh, we have like Basic Instinct. Oh, Single White Female. I've never seen Single White Female. That might be my pick. Uh, I might have to go with Single White Female because I feel I was just watching the previews for that. Why was I watching the previews for that? Uh, final answer. You know what? Let's go with wild things. Wild things would be my final answer, but we have to hear what Jason thought first. All right, Jason, what would you, I think it's not nineties, but cruel intentions was the only thing I could think of. Oh, dang. Is that, does that count as an erotic thriller? I don't know. I think it was for me as being like a sheltered Mormon kid. So are you going to stick with wild things? You know, I cruel intentions is 1999. Okay. And I do, I do love Cruel Intentions, but I've also seen Cruel Intentions. So I don't know. I'm not the happiest with Wild Things. And Josh, I feel that you might have some good opinions on erotic thrillers. So I might choose What's in the Basket. 
It's wild things. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Yay. Oh man. You know, this is a really, really hard one for me for real. What I really wanted to watch is this weird, I don't even say it's weird. I really wanted to make you watch The In Crowd, which remember we had the theatrical oh, poster in our, yeah. in our apartment at the time, but that was 2000, which it oh, us, just we cut, cut it. Cut and it's not a great movie, but it's a movie that I want to just discuss because I don't think a lot of people saw it. And it's something. It's def- I think it's the director of Pet Cemetery 1 and 2. And so it's a very, very interesting movie. And so I was like really trying. I'm like, oh, I want to do this. But I was like, oh, fuck, that's 2000. <sighs> you know, I haven't watched Wild Things in such a long time. I just thought not only that, it's gonna ha- we're going to have a lot of fun talking about, I think, just the buzz that it created at the time. So, yeah. Um, all right. Well, thank um, you, Jason, for being with us. Yeah. yeah thanks for Thank having you. Me. And I hope you join us for our next episode while we're talking about it. Please visit viewers Video Dropbox podcast on Instagram or Video Dropbox on Twitter if you'd like to contact us. You can also reach us at videodropboxpodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on our social media pages. So until next time, please remember to be kind and please rewind and join us for Wild Things.